Good morning. Um, thank you for coming. This talk is on, or this breakout session is on balancing competence and compassion. This, uh, there's a little abstract. Um, I'm going to try to make this not so abstract, but more practical and take home like things that you can do. But basically, this is the idea that healthcare education, professional education, or certification require core clinical competencies to be demonstrated before privileges are granted. That's the way things work here in this country. Um, in the midst of the endless cycle of healthcare training, experience, documentation, and verification, there are still ways to act with compassion. And as Christian physicians, nurses, people, we are called to carry compassion everywhere we go to act out of compassion with a heart of compassion. In global health, we are called to balance competence through learning procedures, improving our abilities, and honing our skills with compassion by doing what we can now to meet the immediate incredible needs before us. I don't know if I'm making sense. I feel like I've been trying to explain this to people for about 10 years, but... It looks like most of you are probably in training at some stage. And what I've seen is that there's a trend towards more training and more training and more training and more training. And it seems almost like a merry-go-round, a very expensive merry-go-round. It keeps you out of practice as long as possible. It's almost like there's too many doctors in America. And so they're trying to delay the time that you're going to actually be in the workforce um, because the pocketbooks aren't as big as they used to be and the check account, checking accounts aren't as big as they used to be. So there's less to go around and more people to divide it up amongst. And everybody wants a piece of that pie. Now, um, I have to remind myself constantly, and this is because of the way medical education, healthcare training has become in the U.S. It's almost like you are trained that you are not competent. You are told that you cannot do this again and again and again. And I think it's because the devil has taken over healthcare. Um, really. He's, he's the accuser of the brethren. He's, he's accusing you that you're not, you're not good enough to meet that need that's in front of you. And you might have been, but you no longer are. Because now you realize that there's another 120 studies about that that you haven't read yet. Alright, so... I just need to remind myself that I am competent, that I do have some qualifications. And I'm actually a professor, volunteer, professor with the University of Buffalo uh, since January 2013. I'm, I'm medical director and founder of Pioneer Christian Hospital for 10 years. I've been medical director of this hospital. Before that, I started two medical clinics that are still running and, and actually seeing more patients than our hospital sees. Uh, they're running very well. They're not being run by me. They're run by the church, the National Church in Congo. 
so I have some experience. I'm also a diplomat of American Board of Family Medicine, and if I paid the fee, I would be a fellow or whatever they call it. Um, so, you know, I've been that since, um, since like finishing residency and passing the exams. And wait, you're never done. Because <laughs> every seven to ten years, you have to take those exams again. Okay, well, that's all right. Certify that I am competent. I'm certified that I'm competent. Uh, family practice residency, Tulane University School of Medicine, combined degree program with the School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. A lot of training. You know, I tell high school students when they're thinking about becoming a doctor, it's like, okay, when you graduate from high school, because like, yeah, I graduated. Okay, you got another 12 years before, minimum, before you can be certified to practice medicine. Three-year residency program, four years in medical school, four years of college. It ends up being about 12 years. So welcome back to kindergarten when you graduate from high school. And now that, that's because I chose the easy route, family medicine. You know, we are the doctors that always have an inferiority complex because we're jack-of-all-trades and specialists of none. And, and we are intimidated when, when people call us GP. But that's really kind of what we are. <laughs> family practice kind of grew out of GP, general practitioner. Um, well, I did go to high school and college and, and then, but you know, the most important diploma that I have, I still have it in my wall, on my wall, it's my favorite one. It says, Master of Kinder Arts and Skills. <laughs> it's my kindergarten diploma. And I was from June of 1972. And then I also have a birth certificate. I was born, I am certified. <laughs> I live, I'm human. That, that qualifies me to have compassion. And compassion can lead us to do certain things that we might not do otherwise. There was a book that I read in college. It's called All I Ever Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. It's a good book. And it really has changed my life, you know, because I remember that frequently on the mission field because I'm often confronted with problems that I would refer in a heartbeat. <laughs> they wouldn't even get an appointment in my office in a family practice in the U.S. They wouldn't even get an appointment. We would orient them. We would refer them immediately before they even came. But they're constantly walking into my office or being carried into the office in Congo. So all we ever needed to know, we learned in kindergarten, because those basic kinder arts and skills are very important. How to tie your shoes. I mean, that helps in surgery. Some of those knots are a little bit important. <laughs> Knowing how to tie a good knot. It's basic, actually. It's quite basic. It doesn't really take seven years or six years, depending on your residency program. Now, I, do, I am certified. I have a lot of numbers that I have to keep up or else I lose these certifications. And it's a continuous process. And um, the one I wanted to just highlight here is, is way down, where is it? My CMD, I didn't write, oh yeah, CMDA, number 209981. That's since, since medical school. I just want to put a plug for CMDA. 
If you're not a part of CMDA, go ahead and join today. It's going to be a blessing to you, especially if you're going to end up working overseas sometime. They are huge support to us as medical missionaries serving overseas. They have this continuing education process in Greece now every two years and every other year it's, every other year it's in Greece, every other year it's in Southeast Asia. It's an incredible thing that helps us maintain some competencies and to keep up with what's happening back home so that we can maintain our licenses. And just even if you never do anything with it, you joining CMDA helps us because then you're a part of the organization and, and every, I think every Christian doctor or dentist should be a part of this. And the PAs are in that too. Um, some other professionals are, have joined CMDA as well. So, um, the other thing that, that qualifies me, I would just want to say, this is a practical session. Take it home. If you don't have a passport, you're not going to travel anymore, not even to Canada. So, get a passport. What are you waiting for? It's a good idea. Probably most of you already have it. All right. So all that says, and I have to remind myself, because the world says you, you, I can't be practiced in the hospital because I'm not a hospitalist. Uh, you know, or, you know, pretty soon it's going to be the, the left uh, big toenail doctor and the right big toenail doctor. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's broken down the human body into so many pieces that there are so few people that actually look at the big picture that it's no wonder things are crazy. Now, all this tells me that I'm good, okay? All those numbers and my grades and, and passing some exams on a routine basis tell me that I'm good. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said to him, why do you say I'm good? No one is good but one, and that is God. So no matter what the world tells you, you're good now. You're finally okay. You finally made it. You can, okay, you can see this next patient. You can prescribe something. Jesus says, there's only one that's good, and it's God. So what I'm trying to say to you is, if you want to be competent as a Christian physician, Christian nurse, Christian healthcare worker, put God first. He created your mind. He created your will, your emotions. He knows what it takes for you to be able to help that next person. And there's this um, verse, but I'll get to it in a minute. Healthcare needs in Congo are enormous. I mean, I really. My wife reminds me not to bash myself too much, but I do have an inferiority complex just because I've been practicing in Africa for 20 years, and I don't know the latest recommendations of some organization about that body part. And the numbers that change every two years with the guidelines, you know, like what does the uh, cholesterol supposed to be right now, you know, today? And then it's going to change in one year or two. But healthcare needs in Congo are enormous, and it doesn't take a, a brain surgeon. Well, uh, it doesn't take a, somebody super intelligent to recognize that there's a problem here, you know. And so often we don't even have to like go very far into a physical exam before we realize what the diagnosis is. I mean, this is a goiter, okay? It's, it's, a, it's a big thyroid, a growth in the thyroid. From not having iodine in the diet, from living in the forest among the acopygmies. So, the needs often overseas are much more obvious. You don't need 150 test exams to be able to figure out and send them to the lab. It's just staring at you. 
or you smell them before they come in the room and you know what the problem is. So get, you get back to nature almost when you get into a very underserved area and things are allowed to progress further so that it's not as hard to recognize what needs to be done. So then, okay, so that helps. So I'm trying to encourage you that diagnosis gets easier the fewer doctors there are around. <laughs> now, to, to illustrate this, in, in Fondo, Luikwala region, where Olivia and I, well, Olivia lived most of her life there. That's my daughter, Olivia, right there. Um, it's a town now of 90,000 people in a region of 200,000 people in the heart of Africa's largest inundated tropical rainforest. Um, and we have five doctors. There's four government doc, uh, two, three government doctors and two at our hospital. Uh, for a cash area, about 200,000 people that we're serving, five doctors. So we have a doctor-patient ratio of one, to, one doctor every 40,000 people. That doesn't sound so bad, right? I mean, because not all the 40,000 are sick at once, right? So, <laughs> so we have two physicians, 60 beds are in, in our hospital. Like the doctor-patient ratio in our area is one doctor for every 333,393 uh, people. So... Where I'm from now, Wyoming County, New York, it's a rural county. We have more cows than people, like a lot more cows than people, because uh, there's big dairy farms with, that are milking to 3,000 cows in, in Wyoming County. So we have a population that's actually shrinking. It's getting lower. That the human population is getting lower. The cow population is growing. And uh, we have 593 square miles. Population density is 71 per square mile. Average income is, you know, pretty good. Um, it's one of the poorest counties in New York State, but the average income is still pretty good compared to the world. And the healthcare expenditures have gone up a lot in, in the years that I've been a uh, certified physician. So Wyoming County, we have a hospital, and um, there's 230 doctors in, uh, in Wyoming County, 230 doctors. And so at, at Wyoming County Community Hospital... Um, if they had the same ratio of doctors to patients, instead of 230 doctors, they would have 1.25. Now, I have met those doctors that are worth a quarter of a doctor. Um, but same thing, in our hospital, if you take that same ratio of what Wyoming County, New York has and bring it to Infondo, instead of two doctors at our hospital, we'd have 916. Now, I don't ever want to have 916 doctors, <laughs> Because, of course, we never agree on anything. But uh, the point is, for them, this verse, 2 Corinthians 9:18, God is able to make all grace abound to you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and you are following him, you are instantly a specialist in everything. Because the Holy Spirit dwells inside you. If you believe, if you believe, the Holy Spirit will guide you. The Holy Spirit will tell you, don't try to touch this patient. Do send them to the capital. Or the Holy Spirit will say, go ahead. It's okay. Do your best. I know because that's the way I live. And I've proven it over and over, over and over again. 
Let me just break this verse down. God is able. He is the focus. God is able. I'm not able. I'm incapable. God is able. He's the actor. He's the principal. He's the star of the show. And that's the way it's supposed to be. This depends on his abilities, not yours. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. If you break down the verse further, it says, God is able to make. So he does the action too. The creator creates in you capacity to meet needs that are staring you in the face. To make things happen. He brings things into existence using you if you're willing to be a servant. God is able to make all grace abound. And for God to use us is grace. The fact that he uses any of us, fallen creatures, to help any other fallen creature is pure grace. It's not our ability. It's not our superior intelligence. It's not our ability to, what is that called, delay gratification, put everything off until, you know, so that we finish. It's not that. It's his grace abounding in us, all grace, all him, to you, from him to you. So there's a transfer that you, this is for a reason that God does this, so that you always having, it's not never had or never, you're, you're never a has been with God. He's in the present continuous tense. That's why God is the I am. He's always present, ever present. And so if you're uh, going on a missions trip, I hope you don't just do short term because you're never going to get the full benefit. Go long term and you will see God become fully sufficient in your practice, in your, in your work. All sufficient. That means you'll have enough. You'll have the content. You'll be more, at, more than adequate. You always have enough for the test. Now, I'm just, you know, okay, this is, I'm... We're trying to balance things, okay? And what I'm saying is your world is balanced like this. Competence is, is most important, and compassion, um, we have chaplains for that, or, you know, we, we have social workers for that. You know, that, you know, compassion, oh, they can go to church, or, you know, they, if they need help, they can see a counselor. So compassion is way that. And I'm just trying, you know, I'm, I'm stating the argument strongly. Because you're not going to be instantly competent. You do need to have training. I'm not saying, you know, stop residency, <laughs> come now. No. Finish your training. Like Eileen said last night. How beautiful is that? You know, go. <laughs> what I'm saying is maybe think twice now when you're done with the training before you sign up for the next one. Because <laughs> it's a never-ending process, the training here in this country. God is able to make all things... Uh, always having all sufficiency in all things, that you may abound. It's not just adequate or just enough, which it often is just enough, but he also, like, he's a God that overflows with compassion. He gives you more than enough. And that means you have some more to spare, to, to, to share, for every good work. All right, let's do a three case studies. Number one, Charlotte, or Charlotte, now, I know that's her name because in, in, in DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, we don't, I don't work in DRC, but half of my patients come from there because we live right on the river and the patients cross the river. And in DRC, there's a tradition, uh, I don't know when it started, probably in the 60s, 70s, 
but everybody gets their arms tattooed with their name. And it's quite it's quite helpful in the OR. <laughs> everybody has their name tattooed, and it's done by hand, and it's usually sloppy, and it's sometimes hard to read. They just do it themselves. At some point, for usually teenagers, they tattoo their name. The idea I, I really don't understand. I, I need to go through more culture shock so that I can understand after 20 years living there. Why do people do these things? But they tell me that it's because, well, if I ever pass out and come to and can't remember who I am, then I'll know. Okay, if I have an out-of-body experience and I come back, then I'll, I'll know who I am. Or if I die somewhere, you know, then they'll know who I am. But it actually it really helps in the R because when you put them under, that before you cut them open, you're supposed to see that before you put them under, but if you forgot, you can take, oh yeah, this is Charlotte, we're going to take out the pins in her left leg, you know, the plate and pins in her left leg. So Charlotte came to us, she was a 28-year-old refugee from Republic of Congo, and she had a motorcycle accident. Now, you know, there's not a lot of lady woman motorcycle drivers in Congo. There are some. But what they are right now, the last 10 years it's developed, is um, cheap motorcycles made in China. And for about $300, you can, $350, you can buy a brand new motorcycle, 125 cc's. Um, so there are what's called motorcycle taxis all over in Central Africa now. And it's a real problem because we, every day... We have an average of one motorcycle vict- accident victim a day. So Charlotte was not driving the motorcycle. She was on the back of the motorcycle, probably with two kids, probably with a basket and the driver. And the driver went off the road, and, and she got a tib-fib fracture in her left leg. 28 years old, tib-fib fracture. Bad, bad break. Charlotte. Now, the x-ray doesn't look so hot. Now, this isn't really Charlotte's leg. I'm trying to protect the innocent. Um, this is somebody else's leg. But the fracture was bad, tip-tip fracture. And we saw that in our family practice. And, I, and my partner at the time, uh, PZR, you know. So not, we're not really highly trained in OB. I mean, I had like two or three months in residency in OB. So, you know, I'm not like super qualified to deal with this fracture. Like, if I was in the U.S., they would, would call the ambulance, take them to the ER. And the ER would send them home, cast them and send them home and, and make their appointment with the orthopedic surgeon for Monday. Never on the weekends. You don't, you don't see them. You wait till Monday after 9 a.m. So, yeah, whatever. So, Charlotte, you know, if we saw this, we would want to transfer her to have an orthopedic surgeon do, do the surgery. In this case, we did, because it was a bad break, and she was a refugee. So refugees get free care. It's kind of like Obamacare. So, you know, they could just send them, and nobody has to worry about how she's going to pay for it, because she can go to Brazzaville and be staying in a hotel for two months while at the government university hospital, they finally find the orthopedic surgeon about a month later after a break. They put in a plate and screws in her tibia. Of course... um, the plate and screws in the in the seashu, um, not always sterile. <laughs> the conditions, the operating conditions, even in the capital city, are not always the best. Um, I remember when I first moved to Congo, I was trying to take care of patients 
um, to maintain my competencies, uh, I was working with people that spoke English, you know, the, the international community. I was their doctor for a year and a half while I was studying French. And uh, so I had some occasion to go to the CSU, and they had seven, o, seven ORs, and they had four uh, sterilizers, but none of them worked. And so they were doing 2,000 uh, cases a year with no sterilizer, no functioning sterilizer. They didn't have soap either. It's a six, seven-story building. None of the elevators worked. The surgical wards, orthopedic wards, were on the seventh floor. The OR is on the second. So you'd have to carry patients up the stairs with stretchers. Not ideal conditions to refer to. And, of course, her, her, her plate got infected. And in orthopedics, one thing I remember from my three months of training is that, you know, if you've got a foreign body and there's infection, you've got to take out the foreign body. It's never going to get better. So the, the plate and screws have to come out. The bone's not healed yet, but, you know, it's more important to stop the infection. You can fix the bone later if you cure the infection. So, but that didn't happen because she was at the specialist. So they kept them, her, and she came back to me uh, nine months later with, uh, there's this draining coming out of my leg, and she's still using crutches nine months after her fracture. And um, her leg's all swollen, and she has low-grade temp, and she's got pus draining out from uh, fissure tracks back down to her tibia. Now, we did have an x-ray, which I didn't take, sorry. Uh, we got an x-ray of it, and the bone actually the, had consolidated, both tibia and fibula, the bone was consolidated. Um, but the plate was still there, and there was, there was a pocket of pus. So, confidence, balancing confidence and compassion. I said, well, you need to go back to Brazzaville, because I'm compassionate. So, I want to meet her needs. So, you know, you're still a refugee. You can still go back. Go back to Brazzaville and have them take that plate out. And she said, I don't want to go back. And she could go. Most of my patients, 90% of them, cannot afford to go to the, hot, the capital if they wanted to. They, just cannot, they can't afford to do it. So I can't, even if I want to refer them, it's not going to happen. They're not going to go. And she could go, but she didn't want to go because she didn't want to go there and spend two months again in the hotel and really have nothing changed. <laughs> so, so I girded up my loins of compassion. And I, th- I thought, well, taking out a place got to be easier than putting it in. And I do put them in sometimes when I have, absolutely have to. I don't, I don't like to do it because it's hard work. <laughs> it, it's hard work. Sometimes the screws break and the screws get stripped. And, you know, there's this problem. And we still don't, the X, our x-ray broke in July. So we don't have x-ray right now. I really want to see the plate, how it is doing now, not just in July. But um, she hadn't had another fall or another traumatic event. So... Um, I wasn't fully competent, medically speaking, to take out the plate and screws. But then I remembered, basic things are the most important. You know, they used to say airway, breathing, and circulation. Now they've switched it around and confused me, but... <laughs> airway, breathing, and circulation, you know, first make sure that they, can, that they have a way to breathe, that there's a place for the oxygen to go. That, Basic things, the most basic things are the most important, are going to make the most amount of difference in that patient's life. So for, for her, I remember, wait, in eighth grade, I took shop class. And I remember how to turn a screw. 
wow, that's like an orthopedic skill. <laughs> it really is. That's what you do in orthopedics. You put in a lot of screws and plates. So, um, and I'm just having to take it out. That's not hard. So, so I got it up my lens compassion. We scheduled her and we took care of her knee. And she had eight screws and a big plate and got, got seven of the screws out. And the eighth one, three times I tried. It was bent, I could tell from the previous x-ray. And it just, it was starting to strip. And I'm like, okay, we're going to have to sterilize the vice grips again from the mechanic shop. Because, <laughs> you know, the, how are we going to get this screw out? Well, God is able. And I have my high school graduate a surgical assistant that I'm training on the job, and this is his fourth surgery. Um, I said, well, let's stop and... No, he said, let's stop and pray. Basic things are the most important. He remembered. <laughs> First important. <laughs> so we stopped and prayed. And then I tried again for the fourth time. No problem. The screw just came right out. And after the screw, about 50, 60 cc's plus. So we were able to rinse it out and irrigate. And I remember that from my training. <laughs> That's important. Clean. Cleanliness is next to godliness, right? No, it's not true. But God, I think God is clean in his holy temple. He is clean. So we cleaned it out, flushed it as best we could, left the area open so that we can pack and, and did the cicastectomy. I got rid of the infected bone. And, and she's fine and she's walking. And, and she's out of pain. And it's so rewarding. So case study number two. This, this girl, his name is Ninel. Okay, so orthopedic, oh yeah, everybody knows. that They're the jocks, uh, the doc jocks. Because they're into sports and they're strong and they're buff and everything. What about neurosurgery? You know, a family practice doctor doing neurosurgery. You know, you have to be like Ben Carson to do neurosurgery. You have to be really super, super trained, and you have to be really smart to even get in the programs. And Well, Ninel is a two-year-old girl, again, hit by a motorcycle taxi. So, you know, the motorcycles have handlebars and clutch and brake. And the, the brake went right into her temple, the brake handle, metal brake handle. And uh, she came to the hospital uh, flailing about and screaming and crying. But within half an hour, she's starting to fall asleep and become unresponsive. And she has a depressed uh, temporal skull, skull fracture. We don't have time to fight with our inner demons and realize that we are confident in some things. She's going to die. She's going to herniate. She's got a subdural hematoma. Now, CMDA, join CMDA. <laughs> in Kenya, you know, I wasn't trained to do um, temporal lobotomies or anything in residency, in family practice. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I did go to CMDA in Kenya in 2006 or something. And there was a workshop about motorcycle accidents and draining subdural hematomas. And so I went to that and they had models and, and so... My practice, because I thought this might come in handy someday. So, so uh, I did that workshop, and then in the process, over the years, I've done about four or five at our hospital. So um, we had a new, res a new 
physician on our staff, and it's his first day on call. And I thought, well, I've done it. You know, there's an adage, see one, do one, teach one. And I'm just promoting this idea. Let's shorten that. Do one, teach one. (laughs) Or see one, teach one. Because the other guy hasn't even seen it. So who's better to teach, right? Out of the two of you. So I thought, well, this is a good time for our friend to to learn how to do this. Because I've helped do four or five over the years. And um, some of them lived, some of them didn't. But that's, that happens here too. <laughs> so um, so we, were, we walked through it. I walked him through it. He, 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 he likes to read. So he checked the article and read the step by step. We do surgery by the book a lot. Literally, the book's there. What's what, step number one? Okay. Step number two. <laughs> so, um, so we did this procedure, and it was so cool, because we did it quick. We knew we didn't have time, and, you know, do the scalp flap, and there's a gush of blood right under the skin. Go, go to the muscle, another gush of blood. It was like hematoma at every level, and it, it was so rewarding. Take, take this, get, get down to this, this skull, the bone, and get that out, boom, a little puff of blood. And then finally getting down to the door, open up the door, and the pressure's relieved. And the next morning, we were not competent to do this, okay? But God made all grace abound, that we were sufficient. Because the next morning, we went to do rounds, and we walk into our post-op ward, and both of us, our hearts just sank because the bed was empty. Now, in, a, in our setting, the bed empty is usually not a good thing. It means the patient's died in the night and the nurse never called you. So, um, we, you know, it's Monday morning and we're coming to this realization that, ah, oh, after all that, you know, it seemed like a perfect success story that we can talk about in the next conference. <laughs> and she's gone. But we... We have eight beds in our ward, and so we started, and we're going around, and we just skip over that bed because she's not there. And then we went, oh, she's sitting up eating fish for breakfast <laughs> with her siblings on the mat, on the floor, next between the beds. She's talking, eating. We know it was her because she had a big, like, turban wrapped around. Because <laughs> you have to protect that spot where there's no bone or it's kind of soft you now. So, Ninella, she made a complete recovery. We kept her in the hospital for a week, you know, making sure that there wasn't any problem. There was no problem. She could have gone home the first day. She was cured. And we praise God. He made us competent without a residency program in neurosurgery or a fellowship. Now, the last case study, so those, okay, maybe we're balancing trying to balance compassion, confidence, do something versus do nothing. But first, we don't want to do no harm, you know, so we don't want to hurt somebody doing something that we really, that God's not helping us do. Uh, so you really need to depend on the Holy Spirit. Well, this is a, an example of having too much compassion because that could be a danger too. Um, it's not, I, I see this a lot, a lot in the really, really short, short, short term missions. Uh, a little bit too much compassion and come in, give everybody everything, and leave, you know. Let's balance compassion with confidence. Let's actually do something that's really actually going to help, rather than just vitamins or whatever we can do, okay? 
Um, what's that saying to every, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail? You know, it's not true. Um, everything is not a nail. So, Car- Darla, this is a case study of having too much compassion. We have a, a staff, we have a lot of local staff, and one of our local staff medicine workers is, is a physician's assistant, and he's excellent, he's great, and he's become the head of our OR. He runs the OR for us. He assists us in all the surgeries, and now he's starting to do some of the, we're training to do, do some of the surgeries that we don't love to do, you know, to divide up the work, right? So, um, and family members come to his house at night with his niece, 20-year-old niece, who was pregnant G3P2. And she said, I'm having a miscarriage, and I can't get the bleeding to stop. And he says, well, go to the hospital. And the family says, we don't have money to go to the hospital. And you're tra- you know what to do, so you just help us. So our friend, it's night. In mud huts, there's not a lot, always a lot of electricity. But he wants to help. His family can't afford to go to the hospital. They can't. She's bleeding fast. Um, he, he wants to help. So he has a few instruments at his house, and he, he knows, you know, he's seen this done a lot of times. <laughs> so he proceeds to do a DNC to try to stop the bleeding from this partially, you know, incomplete abortion, spontaneous incomplete abortion. He can't get the, 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 um, the umbilical cord, the placenta, he can't get the whole thing out. So what do you do? You, you pull harder, right? Well, I went to the hospital, because I did eventually come to the hospital, expecting to see this, because I've seen this. <laughs> and often when you have you know, postpartum or complications of a miscarriage, um, this is what I expect to see, the blood dripping down onto the floor and making a pool. And just, you know, this gets your heart beating fast if you're responsible, <laughs> the one they're calling when they're in trouble. And as medical director, that is me. So this is what I was expecting to see. But I walked in, and because there was too much imbalance, there was just too much on the side of compassion and not enough competence, this is what I saw. Now, a lot, some of you might not have had anatomy. That's not the, it's not the placenta. It's not the umbilical cord. That's the small intestine pulled out through the uterus which has been perforated. Now, this would be great if it was an uncommon occurrence, but I've seen this every year. Every year we get a case like this, where people that have no business doing surgery in places where they, that they should never be doing surgery are doing it. So they, they're trying to help their family. This, literally, he was not doing this for money. There, most of the time, this is people that are doing it for money because everybody knows in Congo, uh, you can get $40 for doing a DNC, uh, for doing abortions. Um, when I was in family practice residency in Erie, Pennsylvania, one of my OB attendings at the Catholic hospital said, hey, you want to make some extra money on the weekends? A hundred bucks a pop, he said to me. That's literally what he said. Now, he doesn't do it at the Catholic hospital. He's got another clinic where he goes. And, and on Saturday mornings, you do see, um, 
abortions, and you can do ten in an hour, you get a thousand bucks. Suction curatage. So in Congo, a lot of people, a lot of nurses, a lot of government hospital nurses, they never worked in the OR, but they can get forty bucks, two, three cases a night in the mud huts, taking care of these poor women that need their help. Because they're too poor and the babies come too close to the last one. You know, the timing. They need to space their children better. So they're just trying to help. Well, most of those guys aren't really trying to help. But our guy really was trying to help his family member. But you know what? It didn't help. And we had to remove most of her small intestine. And we had no idea if she was going to survive. But we did what we could. And actually, she's fine. She came to see me a couple months ago. She's eating normally. She has normal bowels, stools. Um, we had to do a hysterectomy, complete hysterectomy, and, and a resection and reanastomosis uh, direct. So, master of kinder arts and skills. You know, my wife um, really helps me with this one. More important than your medical skills, your nursing skills, your training that is never ending because it's a racket, I'm telling you. The more important than all that is those kinder arts and skills. Acting with compassion. Using skills with compassion. And balancing that is what I'm encouraging you to try to find that balance. You never will. I, I haven't found it. <laughs> I struggle with this every day. I'm sure sometimes I do more than I should. Other times I do less than I should. But if we could be kinder as we do it, as we make those decisions, I think God will be glorified. Before you go and write me up <laughs> for doing this stuff, remember where we are. Okay, This is the context I'm talking about. If there are more qualified people, your, <laughs> your duty is to take them and go learn from them. right? But um, we're in the jungle. Hospital carved out of the jungle in a town with 2,000 people living on this, um, off that show. Yeah, this, this is a little, right now it's, it's on a plane, but during the rainy season that's a little island and 2,000 people, 2,000 refugees are living there in grass huts with plastic tarps from the United Nations. They have left their homes, their villages have been burned. If they go back, their women get raped, their children get raped or put into child labor or you know so they're they are desperate and they they can use help um this is a little line yap because i went to tulane in new orleans and line yap means a little something extra and so i'm going to give you a little something extra because i didn't get to say it yesterday a few more thoughts about joy and practice and this is a message uh, for you mark mark chapter 3 verse 11 through 19 this is the why part you Okay, you do need to think about you. Jesus thought about himself. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. So if we don't love ourselves, we're not going to love our neighbors enough. We need to love ourselves. We need to love our neighbors as ourselves. And first and foremost, we need to love God. Jesus said to his disciples, he made that a small ship should wait on him. Just on him. How, how selfish. You know, in America we're quite... We're quite affluent, and we have vehicles. We have personal private vehicles. You know, in Congo, you don't have a private vehicle unless you're a minister or something, and then you have a driver and a bodyguard to go with it. 
Jesus made sure that there was a chauffeur-driven boat (laughs) waiting for him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. He was healing a lot of people this time, and he took precautions to protect the healer, to preserve the healer. Verse 13, And he goeth up into a mountain and calleth unto him whom he would, and they came unto him. Delegation. Multiplication. This is when he's calling the disciples. He realized he was God, right? He was never going to finish the job. There was too much need. There were too many people. So he called unto him whom he would. And I would propose to you that God has called you. And it's because he wants you to be a part of what he wants to do in places where your help can be used and helpful. He ordained twelve to be with him, spending time with him. He was a mentor for them. And they came to him. And he, then he sent them forth. That he, might, he, he did this. It was a training program to send them forth, not to prepare them for the next training program. All right? It was three years. It was enough to turn over the world. He ordained twelve that they should be with him, that he might send them forth. Don't forget the purpose of your training is <laughs> actually go and do something like Eileen's encouraging us. Have power to heal. And they went into a house. So all this stuff was thinking about him, how he can be more effective, recruiting others, training them, equipping them to then go out and and then go into the house. There's a big crowd out there. We'll go away from them. Get away so that you can recover, so that you can regain your strength, so that you can wake up in the morning and go to work. All right? Voila. Um, and then this is the, the real line yet. Most people, I guess I'm weird because most people didn't really get this joke. Working in a button factory. I was talking about belly buttons. Belly buttons. <laughs> Because when you have a baby and you deliver and you cut the cord, eventually the cord dries up and then they, and you got a belly button. So we, we produce belly buttons when we have good deliveries, healthy deliveries. Because when they die, they, they, they go in the ground all together with the cord. So, yeah. So that's... Whatever. That's lying yet. So, we have some time for some questions and suggestions. All right, if you want to be critical of what I did, go ahead. I can take it. I can handle it. If you have a good suggestion, it might help me for the next case. So, um, yeah. Any questions, answers? Yes. Yes. So how do you balance uh, day in and day out work and home? What? Yeah. Right. Um, I don't know if I do it right, but what I do is I try to get home as quick as I can. <laughs> I leave. I, and, I, and I've decided not to live at the hospital. When we were do, building the hospital, there were some nice houses there. Two, two very nice houses, nicer than where we live. And um, 
my wife helped me with that. And, and she said, no, we're, we're not moving to the hospital. Uh, you need to be able to get away. And I, it's, it's from CMDA again, uh, listening to these good things that we used CMDS Digest or whatever, Audio Digest. Remember in residency, listening to this tape. Um, when you drive home, think of a bridge, and you're going over a bridge, and you're leaving that work at work, and you're going home to be home. You know, it doesn't always work when you're, when you're the only doctor that takes surgical call for a 60-bed hospital. But uh, it doesn't always work, but it, it works most of the time. And so, yeah, balance, pray. Follow the Holy Spirit's leading. Um, literally, God tells me when to leave work. And sometimes the work is not done. But he knows that I'm not going to be any good anymore if I don't go and have some homemade pizza <laughs> with my family, with my kids. So, you know, so the, a lot of times the patients are still there when I get back. Sometimes they've died. And that does happen. But it's God. It's not me. And it's he's in charge of that. It's his responsibility, ultimately. Because I can only do as much as I can do. And so, yeah. Uh, next question or suggestion. Yes. How did you initially, I guess, get used to that? Or knowing that you're the only one there, but you have to have time for yourself? Because I would imagine... The devil is making... Uh, she said, how do you make sure that you get enough time for yourself? Is that what you said? Or how do you... How did they... Initially, how did I find some kind of balance? How do I not feel guilty? Um, I guess, how do you not feel guilty when you have to leave a need and move on and then come back when you're better? Um, what, what you're imagining is what I would imagine because I'm thinking I'm going to be the only doctor, so I'm going to be on call every night. I'm never going to get any sleep. That picture is, again, I'm saying the devil's giving you that picture. Because reality is not that. I, I'm on call 24-7. But I only have, right now, I only have to go to the hospital maybe once or twice a week after I've left. Because we've trained others. We've trained the nurses. And every nurse in Congo is a nurse practitioner. <laughs> they can all prescribe. Um, so... They handle the majority of the cases, and they only call me when they absolutely need me. And so that's, that's how we handle it, through others. Um, and, and a lot of things can wait. Um, all bleeding stops eventually. <laughs> so, yeah. It's incredible. You would think, because you have this training, like you're taught, um, it, post, um, hemorrhage, woman hemorrhaging. Oh, they're going to die. Well, I see what happens when, the, when nothing happens because they couldn't get to the hospital. And a lot of times, their blood pressure goes down to 60 over 30, and then they stop bleeding. And if you check their hematocrit, it's like, um, it would be 10, 11. <laughs> you put it in the machine, it says undetectable for the hemoglobin. But they're still there. God, God has designed incredible physiology. We, we, don't, we don't always let it get there. All right? we, don't get, we don't let them get to that point. Um, but God, God keeps people alive a lot of times, especially when I'm not able to do what I think I need to do. 
God fills in the gap consistently. I mean, miraculously, every day. I'm serious. Every day I see miracles. People that should not be alive, that should not still be coming to my office, are there. You know, so... Um, of course, the other thing happens too. People that should be alive are gone. You don't want to get back. And I'm like, that frustration happens as well. So, sorry. Um, another question, answer? What are our plans for the future for, for this hospital to grow? Well, it ha- growth is like cyclical, okay? So there's times when we have six, seven doctors. There's other times when it's just one or two. Long range, what I've learned is the training, 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 training. So I'm not totally against it, right? But we're not going to have a seven-year fellowship training program. We'll, we'll do a three-year residency program. We're training all the time. So we just train, 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 and train again. And if somebody there wants to learn something, they're going to do it, not me. Because I've done it enough times, a lot of things, that I need to pass it on. Yes? I don't understand this yet, but I know that they care in different ways. So he said, how do you maintain peace, inner peace, when it seems like the staff doesn't care? You know, they don't move fast enough. They're not responding as you think they should. That, that still happens even 20 years down the road. But what I'm understanding more and more, I, this just happened last week. I had a lady um, came in, the baby's dead, no heartbeat. Uh, she was in two days in labor, and it took a while to get to the hospital. Um, and the baby's already dead. And so we got to deliver this baby. Um, so I give the, the dead baby to the mom, and you would expect tears or sadness or some recognition, and there's none. But you know what? I'm learning with time. They demonstrate that. They experience that grief in a different way. And just because I don't recognize it doesn't mean it's not happening. Uh, there's a wealth, there's a depth that I don't even begin to imagine of sorrow, of knowing how to sorrow. They're so much better at it than us. Because most women in Congo, most men, have lost one or two children. And to us, it's like the most saving thing in the world. To lose a child, they've all been through it. And they're able to keep going. So that gives me peace, knowing that yeah, they are experiencing it's just different. And I don't recognize it, but I can tell now that it is happening. Okay, we've got time for a couple more. Yeah. I, I, yes. When, when do you, how do you balance, check with the spirit? Absolutely. I really, I'm trying to tell that's what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. He's there for a reason. He's there to guide you into all things, every decision. One time I was talking to, to medical students and somebody came up to me and says, do you have a, you know, God doesn't care what color socks I wear today. And God is so funny. Because usually um, God doesn't tell me what color socks to wear. But that morning, <laughs> I had blue socks. And 
black socks. And I put on my black socks and was ready to go lecture at the medical school. <laughs> and God said, take off those socks. I said, no. <laughs> That's ridiculous. You don't care about what color socks I wear. And I just said, said you know, like, are you going to obey? So I took off my socks and put on the blue ones. And that's the only time somebody ever used that illustration with me. And I was able to tell him, well, actually, usually, yes, God doesn't care what color socks you wear. But today he did for me. He told me to change my black socks and put on blue for you. God cares. If he knows the number of hairs on our heads, not he just doesn't know one time. He keeps a continuous tally of the number of hairs <laughs> on our heads. He knows about the details of our life. He will reveal to us through his grace he will enable us to abound and have all sufficiency in all things and sufficiency is not always over the top it will be just enough so use what you have use what you have the training remember your training and use it yeah Okay, well, look, I, I didn't, I want, I want to be, I pray for God to teach me to humble myself. She said, are there any legal problems that, that I've run into? Praise God, there's not very many lawyers in Congo. Um, yeah, they're mostly in the capital and in the, in the economic capital too. But I did run into this problem one time. Um, I do surgery all the time, and I, and I had a board-certified certified surgeon come and help me for a month, and so I thought, oh, great, I'm going to do all these cases that I've been saving up and I'm a little bit intimidated to do. And So he's going to do teaching assist and let me do this case, but walk me through it. So we did this case, um, hysterectomy, and um, she did fine, but a month later came back with having fevers and abdominal pain. And the time when I should have been the utmost confidence, um, we went back in and found a compress. And I was the surgeon. It's my responsibility. It's my fault. And so, like, I re- that day, God is funny, because that day I had realized that in my devotions, I realized oh, I usually pray that you'll teach me to humble myself. I forgot to do this for like four or five months. I haven't prayed that prayer. So that day I prayed. And then I went to the OR and found the compress. I mean, that does a pretty good job of helping you learn how to humble yourself to realize that you left something in there. But look when it happened. It happened when I had qualified help. It, it's never happened before when I don't have the qualified help. God is able. So, so he helped me. Because I... Because during the surgery, they're like, what are you going to tell the, the husband? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm definitely going to tell him. You know? And then, so I went back out as they were closing for me, doing the skin. Went out and talked to the husband. I said, um, you know, the pain that your wife's been having, that's my fault. Because we didn't count correctly. And I left a sponge in your wife. And all this pain this month is, is, I'm sorry. And he said, well, you took it out now, didn't you? He said, oh, doctor, it's okay. I'm not going to tell anyone. And he said, 
if you get in a taxi and the taxi has a flat tire, are you gonna are you gonna get, get mad at them? This is an accident that happens at work. You're doing your job. You gotta expect that sometimes you're not gonna be perfect. <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> he's a Muslim and he's got two wives. And the funny thing is, <laughs> six months later, his second wife. <laughs> came back and got, was able to humble my colleague <laughs> because the same thing, when I was on furlough, same thing happened to him. So he had two wives and both of them had a compress left by us at the Christian hospital. And yet he still comes back and he's still fine with it. And the, the wives were glad that the pain was gone, you know. Uh, that they got better. So, you know, we, and we did the surgery. The second surgery was free and the hospital stay was free and we paid for their uh, taxi fare to get home. And, you know, we treated them like royal patients. But, um, yeah. So, you know, we have had that problem, but thankfully um, we are able to avoid most problems. So, praise God. Time to go to plenary session. Thank you so much. God bless. <laughs>